afternoon. And while you are turning there, again, it's uh, good to be back in the pulpit after being away. And appreciate, uh, again, Brother Randy Stone for filling in for me last week. And I appreciate uh, that very much. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. We continue our study through uh, Paul's letter to the church there in Thessalonica. Our sermon title this morning is The Philadelphia Factor. Most of us are familiar with, of course, the city of Philadelphia. It is the fifth largest city in the United States, but you may not be sure of the origin of the name of the city. The, the word Philadelphia in Greek means brotherly love. That's why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. It was founded by a man named William Penn back in uh, 1681. And William Penn was a leader of a religious group called the Quakers. And in several places where they tried to practice their religion, they suffered religious persecution. And so when Penn established the city of Philadelphia, it was renowned for its religious tolerance. They wanted to be able to exercise uh, their religious practices and and open up and and welcome others and, and love each and every resident of the city, regardless of their Uh, religious uh, views. Also, the city was renowned for having uh, good relations with the Native Americans uh, that were living there in the area. And so because of the brotherly love that existed amongst the residents of the city and, and and the brotherly love that existed with the Native Americans, the city of Philadelphia became a, a thriving metropolis. And because of this commitment to love their neighbors, the city of Philadelphia grew to become one of the most prominent, probably the most prominent city in the early history of the United States. The Philadelphia factor. And when we look at our text of Scripture this morning, we're going to see that the same thing is true. A commitment to love your brothers will have an impact on the way you are able to reach others around you. And I want us to consider this morning how your conduct within the church has an effect on those outside the church. The way that we treat one another and the way that we love one another or lack thereof has a deep impact on the way we are able to interact with those who are on the outside of the church. I want to invite you to stand this morning if you are able to. We do this out of reverence for the reading of Holy Scripture. I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 9. And here these words were written by the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. It is only through his shed blood that we enjoy this privilege of prayer, this access to the throne room of God. Father, we come at this time praying for your blessing to be upon the preaching of your holy word. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that you inspired through your spirits. 
We thank you, God, that these words are your words. They carry your authority. They bear your truth. They yield your power. Father, I pray that as I preach this morning, I will preach in a way that's true to your intent, in a way that's clear and understandable. Father, in a way that will enable your Holy Spirit to have a powerful impact on all of us. Lord, if there is anyone here today that is not saved by your grace, I pray through the preaching of the gospel, they will understand the truth that they need to be forgiven. And Jesus is the only way. Father, edify our faith. Grow us stronger in our commitment to you and stronger in our commitment to love one another. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been working our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul, we've seen that we can divide it into two sections. In the first three chapters was Paul encouraging the church. Paul was sharing with them all that they were doing well and how he was so uh, uh, excited about their faith and their hope and their love and, and how he was... Uh, uh, excited to hear this good report back from them that they were continuing on in their Christian faith. And so Paul was encouraging them in the first three chapters. And then in these last two chapters, Paul begins to uh, exhort them and to challenge them that even though things were going well and they were doing good spiritually, he wanted them to increase in their commitments. In fact, we see in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is talking about the importance of pleasing God. And he gives this, this general statement that he says that we have, you have received instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God. So generally that ought to motivate us in all that we do, this desire to please God. I want to please God in the way I live my life. And then Paul goes from that general idea of pleasing God and begins to work in, in the specific areas of life in which we are to do that. He begins in verse 3 through 8, we looked at the last time, talking about sexuality, how we ought to please God in the way that we look at and practice sex. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see that the, to please God, it, it, it has an impact on the way we treat other Christians and also on the way that we treat those who are outside the church. And I believe Paul is intending here an idea of how we interact with lost people. But specifically, in the life of the church, to please God, the first thing we need to do is love the way God has instructed. We are to love the way God has instructed. Verse 9, he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, or now concerning... So perhaps this was an issue that the folks in Thessalonica were, were concerned about. Maybe there were some things going on in the church that was challenging the way that they were loving one another. Uh, we're not for sure, but whatever it was, the Spirit motivated Paul to address this subject. And he, he says, now concerning brotherly love, literally now concerning Philadelphia. Now concerning the love you have for one another. And this isn't the first time Paul has addressed the subject of love. He said throughout the letter several times here about the, the love that the Thessalonians had uh, for God, the love that they had for others. And back in uh, chapter 4 here, in verse 6, when he was talking about sexuality and talking about not transgressing and defrauding your brother. 
And so this verse uh, of Scripture here is linked to what we've already seen already. Brotherly love. And the first thing we learn from verse 9 here is brotherly love is foundational. It's foundational. As a Christian, it is a foundational matter of loving one another. We know this, first of all, because Paul says in verse 9, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. There's no lack of love. If you are a Christian, you have love. You have a love for God. You have a love for others. And Paul says, we realize in the church there's, there's really no need for us to write to you about this for you yourselves. It's an emphatic way of saying, you all already being taught by God. You yourselves. You don't need us to teach you because you yourselves are already being taught by God to love one another. What does it mean to be taught by God to love one another? Well, there's several ways we can look at that. First of all, God the Father. He demonstrates His love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, the Scripture shows us that God is love. 1 John chapter 4. He says, if, if you say you, you have love for God, but you don't love your brother, you know, there, there's no way that's possible. He says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so that's the very aspect of his being. God is love. In fact, God tells us in the Old Testament that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament, reaffirms the teaching of God by saying the two greatest commandments are what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus reaffirmed through his teaching the commandments of God the Father to love, but also Jesus demonstrates in his actions and passes this on to his disciples. In John 13, he's washing the disciples' feet. In verse 34, he says... Now, as I have loved you, so you love one another. Jesus says, my actions are the model. My actions are the example for you to follow. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to demonstrate that love. No greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And through the cross, Jesus demonstrates the love of God. And then also the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The first thing he mentions is love. The Holy Spirit. So being taught by God to love one another perhaps deals with the fact the Holy Spirit resides in you as a Christian. Paul mentioned that in verse 8, talks about the Holy Spirit whom God has given to you, the Holy Spirit within you. He bears evidence of His presence through love. The way you treat others. Interestingly enough, in verse 9, Paul talks about according to or, or uh, concerning Philadelphia, the Greek word there, love for your brothers, he says at the end of verse 9, you are taught by God to love agape one another. And that's the supernatural, divine, unselfish kind of love. That's the love that you commit to love someone, even perhaps if they are unlovable, as we were unlovable to God. So brotherly love is foundational. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three 
through word and through action, demonstrate and enable you as a Christian to love. So it is a foundational matter. But also it is universal. Brotherly love is universal. Verse 10, he says, For indeed you do practice it. So Paul recognizes as a, as a church, they are a loving church. He says, how do we know this? Verse 10, he says, For you demonstrate this and you practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. He says, the love that you have for other Christians is not just isolated to your church. He says, you are loving all the brethren, all the Christians in all of Macedonia, in all of your area. He says, you demonstrate your love. You ask any church, and any church will tell you we are a loving church. But then the question is, are you loving just those of you who are in your church, or are you loving those who are outside your church as well? Paul said to the Thessalonians, you, you are loving all the brethren. doesn't matter the color of their skin. doesn't matter their gender. doesn't matter their social economic status. doesn't matter their political views. If they are in Christ and you are in Christ, there is a mutual connection. And Paul says, you are doing that. You're loving all the brethren, all the Christians, in all the area of Macedonia. That's why I think as a church, it is so crucial that we are a part of the association. The Boone's Creek Baptist Association, there are 35 other churches in our area that believe the same things we do, and we partner with them. And it's also important for us to be a part of the Association of Churches in Clark County. That means regardless of denomination. That means there's safe folks in the Christian church, there's safe folks in the Methodist church, Presbyterian, Pentecostal. If you're a saved individual, then you have something in common. And we ought to demonstrate this connection through love. How are they doing that? Perhaps it was through hospitality as other Christians perhaps journeyed through their city. The Thessalonian church loved on those folks. Perhaps it was through partnership in the gospel that they worked together to advance the mission of the kingdom. Maybe it was financially. Maybe other Christians in other cities were struggling and the, and the church there in Thessalonica supported them financially through a tangible gift. We don't know for certain, but Paul says, you're doing it. And I commend you for that. I'm here to echo what Paul says to that church here in Ephesus. You are a loving church. You demonstrate that through supporting missions. We already talked about the cooperative program. You do that by collecting goods, canned goods and things for community services, the pregnancy center, the homeless coalition, the backpack ministry, the local schools. You demonstrate your love in a practical way. And Paul says that brotherly love is universal. We're not in competition with other churches. We are in cooperation with other churches. And Paul says, indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Brotherly love is universal, but brotherly love is intentional. That means we need to put the effort into this. We need to strive for this. We need to, we need to, to make that our goal, Paul says, but you're practicing, practicing it, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. This isn't the first time he's used 
that phraseology. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, he says, talking about walking in a way you ought to and pleasing God, he says, we implore you, we urge you that you excel still more. That means to abound and to overflow. He says, regarding brotherly love, you're doing it, but we want your brotherly love to abound more and more. We want your love for the brethren to just overflow in every way. And Paul says to do that, you, you, you've got to be intentional about this. He says, indeed you do, yet excel still more. And back the last time he used that, it was back in verse 1 when Paul talks about pleasing God. God is pleased. God is pleased when brotherly love excels still more. You cannot please God if your love for the brethren is stale. If your love for other Christians is on the decline, that doesn't please God. What pleases God is when your love for the brethren abounds and overflows. You're doing it, yet you're intentional in making it your desire to excel still more. Some commentator wrote that it is something that is always practiced, yet never mastered. <laughs> that means even though you are loving, there is always room to be even more loving. Even though you are unselfish in your commitment to others, there's always room to be even more unselfish. It is something that we strive for. In fact, Paul says, we urge you, brethren, there's one brother in Christ encouraging his other brothers and sisters in Christ to make this your intention. We urge you, brethren, excel still more so what might that look like for our church I talked about the fact that we are a loving church we love one another we love the brethren we love Christians in other churches regardless of denomination race and so forth but how can we excel still more I thought about one way you know we've been seeing a lot of growth lately a lot of new faces showing up a lot of visitors a lot of new members have joined our fellowship what about some of our established members being intentional to connect with some of our newer members? Perhaps through the practice of hospitality, maybe inviting a new church member to your home for, for dinner or inviting the family over for fellowship, for, for dessert, for coffee, whatever. Making the, the effort to get to know some of our new folks. Visitation sending out cards and things like that. Just think about ways in which you are loving your church and your church members. And then openly pray to God and say, God, how can I abound and overflow? How can my love for my fellow Christian in this church, how can it increase? What more can I do, God, in a practical way to demonstrate my love to them? Love the way God has instructed. But also we need to live the way God intended. Live the way God intended. There is a direct correlation between verses 11 and 12 to what we just read. First of all, grammatically, Paul says in verse 11, and to make it, and so grammatically it's connected. 
But this whole theme, Paul says, excels still more in your love for the brethren. And so the first thing we might ask is, well, how can we do that? How can we be more loving to the brethren? And Paul says in verse 11, these are some practical things you can do to live the way God intended, first of all. You need to obey these requirements. In verse 11, if you are to abound and overflow, if you are to excel still more in your love for the brethren, obey these requirements he lays down here in verse 11. He starts out by saying, and to make it your ambition, to make it your goal, to aim for, to strive for, to say, I want to settle for nothing less than what follows. Make it your ambition. In the end of verse 11, he says, just as we commanded you. So make it your ambition to be obedient to the commands of God. Paul already has established his authority in this letter. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, we thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Paul says, as we instructed you in the power of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't our instruction, it was God. And so Paul says, as we commanded you, it, it, it comes from God. Chapter 4, verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And again in verse 8, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. So Paul is saying, everything that we have instructed you, you are to obey it because it comes from God. And what Paul spoke to them verbally, we have recorded for us in this written word. And so as Paul instructed them and wanted them to obey what God was saying, we likewise have the same admonition today to, to obey what God has said through this word. As we read this word, it bears God's authority. So therefore, you should make it your ambition to obey what the Scripture says. And what does it say to do? In verse 11, first of all, you are to aspire to quietness. To quietness. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Quietness. Now, that doesn't mean to be boring. <laughs> doesn't mean don't make any noise. I read somewhere it's talking about uh, tranquility. It's not inactivity, it's tranquility. So that means live your life to the full. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy entertainment, activity, and all these things. But make it your ambition to be tranquil in these things. In other words, don't be an agitator. You know what an agitator is, don't you? You know, in a, in a washing machine, you got the agitator, and its job is to stir the clothing is to shake everything up and keep, keep everything moving around. In life, don't be an agitator. Don't be the kind of person who likes to just stir things up. You're not happy unless you're causing some sort of drama. It's like you feed off of it. You, you're not happy unless there's drama going on. We all know those individuals. Maybe you're one of them. If you're on social media, Facebook and things, you, you know the agitators. They're out there. They're, they're intentionally 
posting stuff to stir up trouble or commenting in such a way or, or and Paul says make it your ambition to lead a quiet life don't stir up a bunch of mess tranquility enjoy your life but be quiet and tranquil in this aspire to quietness a drama free lifestyle that's what we need. If we're going to love your brethren, you can't be stirring stuff up with the brethren. Leave things alone. In verse 11, he also talks about abstain from nosiness. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Mind your own business. Don't go sticking your nose, what? Where it don't belong. You can't be loving your brethren if you're all up in their business. There are certain things that just, if you don't know it, you don't need to know it. Certain individuals just aren't happy <laughs> unless they just know every single little thing that's going on in everybody else's lives. Maybe they don't necessarily agitate everything, but they want to know everything. And they love hearing the gossip. They love to have the latest scoop. Did you hear about what's going on in such and such is life. And it, it's, it's oftentimes couched in the form of a prayer concern. Oh, we need to be praying for so-and-so. Have you heard <laughs> what's going on? And the point of the matter is, if it's not your business, it's not your business. And it's, if it's not your business, then why are you sharing somebody else's business? We talked a lot about that on Sunday nights. And then going through the book, I Am a Church Member, and we talked about gossip and things and talked about what should you do. You know, you're not supposed to spread gossip, but you're also not to be receiving gossip either. You know, what should you do if somebody comes at you with some the latest bit of gossip? And I asked that question. And I remember Miss Mary said, You tell them that's not my business. <laughs> it's none of my business. I don't need to know that. You can't be loving your brethren if you're nosy. Sticking your nose up in their business. Mind your own things, literally, is what it says. Your own thing. You've got enough drama and enough issues in your own life. Why do you need to be worried about everybody else's? Mind your own business. And because Paul was addressing this, perhaps it was causing issues with the church fulfilling its mission. You got people agitating stuff, you got people up in everybody's business, and the church wasn't able to do what the church was supposed to be doing. A lack of love for the brethren hinders the efforts of the church. Abstain from nosiness. And also avoid idleness. Just make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands. You know, the Greeks in that culture, they looked down on manual labor. They thought, you know, for... Uh, a Greek citizen to be involved in manual labor was, was beneath you. It was only for the slaves in a lower class. And you needed to be above that. But Paul had already set the example for the church. Remember back in chapter 2? In verse 9 he says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, 
we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And Paul said, we already set the example that those who are able to should work, should desire to work. In other words, labor is to be viewed as higher than laziness. Paul says, avoid idleness. Work with your hands. Now, there's always the situation where somebody can't work, and that's, that's completely different. The church should recognize that. The church should support its own. But if you are able, Paul says, you should be pursuing work with your own hands. Paul was writing to a culture where there was something going on called the patron-client relationship. Now what this was, was those who, who could not afford to, to live on their own means would, would seek out wealthy politicians. And these patron politicians would physically, financially support these clients. In return, these clients would then vote for these politicians. And we see a lot of the same thing going on in our culture today, not to get overly political, but you see some who don't want to work, they want to receive from others something. They want to receive a handout. It's different when a person can't, but when a person can, Paul says, work with your hands. Now, why is it so important that we obey these requirements? Aspire to quietness, abstain from nosiness, avoid idleness. Paul says in verse 12, you will obtain these results. What are the practical benefits of loving your brethren in the church in this way? Minding your business, not stirring up drama, not being a leech or a parasite, working when you're able to. Paul says in verse 12, so that the outcome, the result, so that two things he lists here. You will behave properly toward outsiders, and those are outside the church. Lost folks. You will behave properly toward outsiders, and you will not be in any need. So in other words, you will have, first of all, integrity in the world. Integrity. You will earn the respect of those not only within the church, as you're, you're keeping your nose out of their business, that earns their respect, right? You're not stirring up drama in other people's lives. They respect that within the church. But if we're not doing that inside the church, those outside the church will notice and appreciate that. Say, these folks here, you know what? I'm not part of their church, but you know they keep their nose out of my business. You know, I might not agree with everything they believe in, but you know, they're not stirring up drama out in the community. We earn the respect of outsiders with our behavior. Because if they look and they see us on the inside, this thriving on conflict, and say, that church, it seems like there is so much drama in that church. You know what people are going to say? I've got enough drama in my own life. Why do I want to go join a church and have even more drama thrown on me? But if they see us loving each other, 
They're going to say, you know what? There's something, something going on in that church. You got all them folks there, and it's a growing church. And even though you're adding all these folks, they're loving each other. And there's unity and there's fellowship. There's something going on there that's unique. And people respect that. People will be drawn to that. If you were outside the church, would you be drawn towards a a conflict-ridden church? Or would you be drawn towards a church that was marked with unity and sincerity and fellowship? Doesn't mean the church always agrees on everything. But you disagree in a loving kind of way. You earn their respect. He says that you will behave properly. You will walk the way you ought to towards outsiders. You will have integrity in the world. You will have independence from the world. You won't be depending on the world to meet your needs because you're meeting your own needs. You're self-sufficient. He says that in verse 12. He says, and, and you will not be in any need. There won't be any want. Think about it like this. A church that's unable to take care of its own needs, how will that church be able to take care of the needs of others? If we're called to, as Christians, feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give shelter to those who are without, if we can't take care of our own needs, how are we going to do that? If we are dependent on the world how are we going to impact the world? Which leads us to our last point. Influence on the world. If we are loving one another in the way we ought to be loving one another, the world will notice. If we are independent from the world, if we are self-sufficient, the world will notice. And instead of the world having influence on the church the church is going to have influence on the world we will be earning their respect so that we can earn their audience after all isn't that what we're supposed to be doing as a church sharing the gospel sharing the good news of Jesus Christ yes we are all sinners falling short of the glory of God but Jesus died on the cross for sin and rose again three days later to give victory over sin that's our message and how are we able to communicate that message if we're fighting amongst one another if we're sticking our nose up in each other's business if we are stirring up drama within the church how are we going to communicate that message to the world if that's all they see and hear about us but if they see us as a genuine loving fellowship and we're earning their respect they're going to be more likely to hear what we got to say. It's very important that we're loving one another inside the walls of the church so that we can earn the respect and the audience of those we are trying to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. Consider how your conduct on the inside of the church affects those on the outside of the church. Now we read this passage, we can't help but wonder, what precision is Paul dealing with this? 
Paul wouldn't have written about it if he didn't feel like there was a need, a concern there. He said, I need to address this. Of course, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this, but you get up, what was the situation? I wonder what was going on in that fellowship. Perhaps there were some that were feeding off the generosity of others. They weren't working because they said, you know what, I, I know the church is there. They're going to take care of my needs. But there's some that speculate that maybe what was going on there in the church in Thessalonica, maybe there were some folks that were so certain that Jesus was coming back that they thought, you know, if he's coming back soon, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, would you go to work tomorrow? There were some in the church that were saying, you know, if Jesus is coming back really soon, why do I want to go punch the clock? You know, why do I want to go work with my hands? What's it matter? Why do I need to worry about trying to put food on the table? If Jesus is coming back, it won't matter. And in the meanwhile, if he, if he delays in his return, I know that I've got church family I can just fall back on, and they're not going to let me go hungry. So in other words, maybe some were looking so far into the future, they weren't worried about the concerns of the present. Because remember, Paul, at the end of chapter 1, talks about the second coming of Jesus. The end of chapter 2 talks about the second coming of Jesus. The end of chapter 3 talks about the second coming of Jesus. And guess what's coming up next week? The second coming of Jesus. So maybe some folks were so heavenly minded they weren't any earthly good. You've heard that statement before. But the reality is this. As Christians, it's foolish for us to stand around and do nothing when we know the return of Christ is imminent. It should have the opposite effect. Instead of becoming lazy and dependent on others, if we know Jesus is coming back, we ought to be ramping up our activity. We ought to be getting out into the world and telling others about Christ. We ought to be working harder to make the reality of the kingdom of God come true on earth as it is in heaven. So much work remains to be done. And we of all people ought to strive to labor and not be lazy. If we want to sum it up like this, we can say, impact your culture by loving your church. Think about our relationship with one another. Impact your culture by loving your church. If we really love our church, we'll be able to make an impact on the world around us. We need to be living in light of the second coming, but we also need to be loving in light of the second coming. The writer of Hebrews said that, not to forsake the assembling together as some of us ought to do, but to inspire, provoke one another to love and good deeds all the more as you see that day approaching. Laboring at love. So the question we can ask ourselves Will we be like the early city of Philadelphia? Will we be a congregation where brotherly love impacts not only us, but increases the impact that we are able to have 
on the world around us. Let's pray together.